Welcome to the No Illusions Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Riley, sitting out on my back deck once again with the lovely uh, Chrissy, my partner, fiddle girl from Twitter. She's lighting a cigar. Hello. What are you smoking tonight, uh, Chrissy? Uh, Lot 23 Maduro, which is my favourite right now. At the moment? Yeah, at the moment. Oh, it's and uh, at uh, Chateau Dunaway Riley, for the first time, a uh, friend of ours, uh, Angus Scone. As in scone, but different. Scown. That's me. Scown. Welcome to uh, welcome to the chateau, Angus. Smoking a Podomo Patriarch. Yeah, my cigar of choice at the moment. Um, uh, Tanya and I, have, my partner, is uh, and I have started smoking cigars infrequently. Hopefully, frequently at some point. <laughs> That's a good goal. I think yes. that's a good goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, more, a little bit more frequently. Um, so uh, what I thought we'd talk about, folks, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff we want to talk about tonight, um, but uh, we were just having a conversation after dinner about uh, some of Angus's experiences, which are, are abnormal, to say the least. Um, Angus, why don't you tell us about why you and Tanya and a baby lived in an abandoned school bus for a year and a half. The story of how that happened and why it happened. I lived in a van down by the river. <laughs> Was it by a river? Ah, uh, no, we built a dam. <sighs> Lucky <bit>. for you. <laughs> That's a Chris Farley sketch from SNL for Australians who don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's awesome. Tell us, Angus, and speak up because the microphone's over here. Right. Um... I was living. Well, we were living. Well, hold on. Well, let's 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 wait, 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 wait. I'm doing this all wrong. Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, you live kind of outside of Brisbane. I live in a place called Crystal Waters, uh, which is just, a hippie commune. Yeah, that was uh, constructed about 25 years ago. Became a little bit more formalised about 20 years ago. Um, it's near Mullaney, uh, Queensland, Australia. It's the uh, I guess the Queensland's version of where um, hippies came to um, came together to gather and, and design cooperatives and new ways of thinking and new ways of living um, in uh, and how they could live together in about 20 years ago. Um, so when uh, we were looking around for somewhere to live, um, we started to sort of exp- you know we explored obviously northern New South Wales. Um, but we really did like uh, the, the the scene around Mullaney because there's an awful lot, or well, the people who are doing things there are fairly grassroots, um, are experienced and have a lot more um, to deal with than people who live in northern New South Wales because they're kind of the, the forgotten people. Why are you holding up your hand, Chrissy? I'm trying to take your photo. You're like the paparazzi and I will not have it. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Um, uh, how old are you, Angus? Thirty-five. Married, two kids. Yes. Uh, your job? I run a startup technology company that makes maps and helps people communicate better with maps. How long have you been doing that? Five years now. So you're a programmer slash entrepreneur. Yes. Slash hippie. 
Yes. He's got, he's got long hair and a ponytail, folks, as you'll see in the photo uh, when we put it up, uh, when you go and look at the website. All right, so we've got, got a bit of an introduction out the way. Um, long-time listener of uh, some of my stuff. Been listening to G'day World for a long time, I think, yeah, on yep. and off, yeah. So, um, Angus, uh, the bus. <laughs> Tell us that bus story. <laughs> right, so uh, I was living in a house at Coolum. On the Sunshine Coast, with uh, there was three couples living in this house, and we'd been there for a little while. I'd just come out of a, a startup technology company in England. I'd done a uh, two and a half years there, very exciting. But at the end of it, as anyone knows, you get very sort of when you come out of the other end of whether there's a purchase of the company or um, if your time is up, it's very exhausting, and you sort of want to relax for a while. So I just did some uh, consultancy work for Queensland government. Um, went to my sort of safe, happy place where I was able to live on the beach, um, work seven-day fortnights um, and have a great existence. But I knew that it wasn't forever. Uh, and I'd... Short version of the story, Angus. Right. So then um, <laughs> I... Tanya was working for a biological fertilising company which uh, called Nutritech. They do uh, living fertilisers for organic um, farmers. They just bought a... Uh, a farm near uh, in the uh, near um, near not too far from Coolum, uh, near Andina and near Yamundi, and they needed they just bought this land. There was nothing on it, and they were just going to farm it. And I said to Tanya, I said, "Well, do you think they'd be up for us? You know, someone living there?" And because we started to think about moving away from the beach, so we could grow some food. Um, so we talked to the guys who owned it and they were open for us to live there um, as long as we provided our own accommodation. One of the guys in the house said, oh, I got this bus. And so we went up to his place and got this, collected this 30-foot uh, bus um, on the back of a flatbed truck. Because um, it didn't run. It had no engine. No. Well, it, had a, well, it did have an engine Robin. and we could have probably spent some time and effort to get it running, but we had no plans on like touring around Australia or anything. We just wanted to plonk it in the field and live in that. So then... Tanya and I moved to that after we built a shed over the top um, and made it, you know, got some water off a roof and um, a few solar panels and a bit of 12-volt um, electricity to run my laptop and my um, mobile phone for internet um, and lived there for, yeah, a year and a half uh, where our first child was conceived and born. Um, she was born in a bus? Uh, 95%. Uh, we had uh, we were having a home birth and uh, went to hospital uh, near the end due to some complications. Okay. Yeah. But brought it home to a bus in a field. Uh, yeah, like uh, I think less than twelve hours later, we were back home at the bus. We- and you were running a startup Aww. at the time, living in a bus in a field with a baby. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Can I ask you a question? Sure. How did you shower and not smell like? A garbage dispenser. <laughs> no, we had a shower. Like so, we had we had. So I built a bus. So I built a shed um, that went over the top of the bus, uh-huh. and um, it had a. Um, so I had an iron roof, and I collected that in a big tank, which I now have at my new house. Because um, it was only ever meant to be temporary. It was meant to be for two and a half years. We cut it a bit short. Um, well, because we didn't know what children were going to be like, and I didn't want to do too much work. The farm didn't work out. That's why we moved. Mm. Um, and. Um, so, we, yeah, we just collected the water and we had like a, um, a little 12-volt pump 
and uh, we had this shower that was heated by a gas bottle. So but it was all rainwater? Yeah. And it rained enough for you to have enough water for showers? and Over stuff. a metre and a half of water a year in anywhere is, is enough to live off. Really? Whoa. You recycled the water? A metre and a half of rain a year is enough for anyone to collect and live off. Really? Yeah. I take really <laughs> long showers. Yeah, you can have as long a shower as you want. What did you do with the water after it showered? I mean, where, where did the water go? Went in the garden. Like, it really? basically just had the garden design, so you showered and the water went down into, you know, you know some trees, right. bananas. So you didn't recycle, or you recycled, but you didn't reuse the water for, for personal use. It just, you had a plenty of water there to... We had endless amounts of water to, you know. Oh, wow. And we had a, um, we had a massive dam that if we'd stayed for longer, we would have plumbed into the dam so we could have used that for and just filtered the dam water for, you know, um, uh, for, I guess, secondary use. So we could use the rainwater for drinking and, say, showering and we could use the dam water for other things like clothes washing and other things. This reminds me of uh, the the guy John Krakow wrote about Into the Wild. I'm imagining this bus in alaska only no he didn't he didn't plan nearly as well as you did and he wasn't like running a company and he was just trying to find his inner self yeah. that's right and did you read that book no uh, the movie the movie the book's great and the movie's yeah. really great too so and these days you live on a commune basically it's not i guess it's um it's an eco village so i think a commune is a is a poor word to use because communes tend to indicate that there's a centralised theme or religious belief or ethic or core belief that you know people can turn to in troubles of crisis, whereas we're just a, a group of people who thought you know, that we could find a better way to, to cohabitate together in a, in a semi-rural environment. But you do have communal decision-making. I mean, it's a community where you come together and you make decisions on how the community is going to run, what the co- living codes are, the, the bylaws, if you like, of the community. Yes. Yeah, that's a commune, man. Yeah, but there's no... You're a communist. You're a commie. There's no exclusion. <laughs> there's, no, there's no legal ways that we can exclude people. So I've, been, I've, I've looked at other communities that have more of a company structure. So they'll have a... Um, in, in, Southeast Queensland, where I reside, there's very few of these things at all, and the other ones that exist, basically, a company owns the the property, and you buy shares in that property, and that company then can really do what it wants with its employees or its its the people who have shares. So it can be a lot lot stricter in terms of, you know, we don't let people in here who are coloured, or we aren't, you know, like, and but but the way they get around that. They no purple people. Yeah, <laughs> you know they they'll basically have a you know some sort of meeting where people approve or disprove of the people who are coming into the community. We have no rights or rules about that. Anyone can buy, and anyone can sell. There's no there's no restrictions. Bogans? Um, the, the no cats and dogs rule pretty much excludes stops bogans. bogans. So you do have a no uh, cats and dogs rule. Yeah, cats cats yeah. and hippies are you know go together, don't they? <laughs> Not the hippies that I live with. <laughs> so I couldn't live there. Well, we don't have can live here either. Uh. Let's not get under that subject because uh, that's a painful one, um, <laughs> mostly Cat for tees. me. Meow. So uh, tell tell us a little bit about uh, what life was like 
out there? I mean, it's an alternative lifestyle. What what are some of the differences, do you think, between the way that you live there and, and most of us in Australia are familiar with? Um, I guess the biggest thing is that um, people are engaged and interested and helpful uh, in terms of they really want you to discover who you are and and be the best person that you can be and they don't dictate what that shape or form is. They just support you in any decision that you make. So we have a lot of community events. You know, for example, we have a, a gig once a month and that could be a, you know, a band coming from outside or this month it's just an open mic night where people come down and, and it's not just people just randomly having a go. The community comes down and, you know, tends to support people and, you know, if they see you get up there with an instrument they haven't seen you with, then afterwards they'll engage with you and say, well, oh, I used to play that and maybe I can help you out. So there's generally a um, supportive environment of people experimenting. And, I mean, I guess, the, you know, the, the thing that I experience is overwhelming willingness to be engaged with other people's lives, for better or for worse, and that's not for everyone. Like people will, what you could call criticise, you know, you come up with an idea and, People will bombard you with, oh, that won't work because of this and this and that. But they won't sit on the sidelines and not say they'll, they'll be trying to be constructive rather than destructive with their criticisms. And that's the things that I guess the community's built up over time and one of the things that Tanya and I valued was their, um, their ability to come together in a group, large group, like when we get together and everyone's there, like there could be 100 people in a room and that might be representative of you know of a family so when i go i'm representing my family and i'm trying to communicate my family's needs and wants with community decisions so i mean it's not like where we live where we don't know our neighbors and we we we, we know them to we see them we go hi how you doing we know the name of some of them but we never sometimes we run when we see them sometimes they slam their door shut when we're smoking cigars <laughs> out here but it uh, but you, you you know your neighbors there's real, it's more like a, a a ye old village where everyone knows everyone and actually you know um talks on a you know regular basis works together as a community to solve problems and do stuff yeah but there's also a certain ability to go through crisis and leave people alone like if there's like last year there was a um a death in the community where this guy's wife died she wasn't i mean she would have been in her 50s maybe 60s but not no maybe 50 yeah 50s i guess and like she died well before anyone thought she was going to die and like people haven't been pestering him he was a very active community member but people don't they respect his ability to go away and and you know gather up the pieces of you know the fragments of his life and pull them back together. There's not, I think there's a healthy respect of people going through. The time is different. Like, um, like there's no, it doesn't. It's a different pace in the city because I guess to I come down to Brisbane two or three days a week as well, and that gives me a really good perspective on the pace of how city people and Brisbane's by no means a fast-paced city. Um, how they want to live their life compared to people um, in a semi-rural environment where time is is longer. There's always time to stop and have a chat, even if you're in the even if you're late for an appointment. If someone wants to talk with you, they tend mm. to take the time. Mm. Think about all the time that we lose in traffic and driving to and from. And I mean, you need to talk up a little bit for the mic. All right. I was just thinking. Yeah. I mean, we we lose a lot of time just getting to and from this and that and um 
Yeah, it's like all the all the time we we spend in our car and everything. It could be. Well, we still spend a lot of time others. in our cars. Like I live an hour and a half. Yeah, away, that's true. That's, you know, right? I mean, I, I mean, if we decide to go to something, in some in some regards, I wish we were another hour away from Brisbane because I mean, I'd feel less inclined to go to things. Um, but most people who live up there don't drive down here no. for work like you do. You know. No, but also I think. I've, um, like, I mean, like, I carpool to the station and then I catch the train down from there. Whereas I know a lot of people who live, like, some of my neighbors, um, who don't live in Crystal Waters live in, you know, 40 acre block rather than in Crystal Waters, we have one acre and we have, you know, community title over the rest. Whereas I could have bought a block of land that's just as beautiful, but didn't have the community engagement aspect of Crystal Waters. For slightly more money, um, you know, um, and not had to attend meetings, which people see as a you know some sort of commitment. But um, so there was other people around me who who do do the whole commute thing, and but I mean I'm striving at the moment to, for example, one of the, you know the things I found after I bought my block of land is this fibre that runs to the front of the community. I'm currently trying to scheme how I get the you know the fibre into the community because unfortunately. Um, Telstra was able to convince, or not convince, but bamboozle the community developers into, you know, when they put the copper in and the community would have paid for that copper, they also managed to own that, um, you know, Telstra, rather than the people who paid for it, which was the community in the fees, should have basically owned that. So that's now owned by shareholders who want their return, and I get that. I understand the commercial model there. But I'm like, well, so that means we basically have to run fibre again, like we have to dig up trenches again and come up with a model that, you know, means that we own it. Mm. But then um, that's inherently difficult at the scale of only, you know, a couple of hundred people. It makes sense to have a small community-owned business for telecommunications with slightly more people than that. Yeah. Um, Could have a little bit more scale. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we... we, we um can touch on some more stuff around Crystal Waters, but I wanted to move on to some of the discussions we were having um, over dinner. And it's a, a topic that Chrissy and I have been talking about a bit over the last few weeks, which is the the concept of ethics and um, the, ro- the, the sort of role that ethics plays in our community, in our society, in countries like Australia or the UK or the US. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this um, over the last few months and realizing that in, whenever I have discussions with people about politics, you know, right versus left, liberal versus labor, capitalism versus communism, Republican versus Democrat, whatever it is, at the end of the day, it really comes back to uh, a discussion about an ethical framework for how we want to live together as a society. And and it's become obvious to me that in Australia and I think in other Western countries, we don't really have much of a discussion at a, you know, larger community level about the ethics that we as a community want to live by. You know, and I think... Um, it's probably in in some ways a heritage of the Judeo-Christian uh, mentality that a lot of members of these communities had over for the last couple of hundred years and probably the idea that they already had an ethical framework that was provided for them by their Judeo-Christian 
heritage, um, good or bad, that that ethical framework might have been from a modern viewpoint. But certainly we don't live in that kind of, uh, you know, um, society anymore. And yet we don't have like at a local, state or federal level in Australia a ministry for ethics. We don't have a discussion that I'm aware of anyway at a community level about what are the um, ethical outputs that we want from our socioeconomic or political systems. You know, uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have um, – or if you have a system of ethics, your your political system or your socioeconomic system is just a way or it's a mechanism for uh, how we live together, work together to achieve a certain ethical output that we're all um, comfortable with. But without that ethical set of guidelines, it, it's it's kind of – you're shooting in the dark when you're trying to figure out what the socioeconomic policies are that we want to implement because we're not talking about them in terms of the ethical outputs. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess like the the other thing I'd, I'd like to, to mention is the pace that people want things at becomes too, too fast, you know, like... Um, uh, we have a cooperative up at Crystal Waters, and 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 being involved with that cooperative, you know, it, it's really a very very different pace than like that my investors want with my you know technology company, and I find the two really interesting because you know both want success at some level, but defining that success is kind of you know it's very different. But a recent you know cooperative that we ran. You know, I was at the end of it. I was trying to work out well, was that successful? How did it go? It seemed really chaotic, but it was amazing. There was, you know, like fifty people in the room and everyone giving ideas, and but it seemed a bit, you know, crazy. And and one of the, I guess, elders, I, you know, guys who've been around for a while, um, had said, "Well, look, Angus, when we started this process, it would have been blood on the floors. You know, like we've built up systems that um, uh, enable people to talk to each other." You know, like, and respect each other's views without jumping down each other's throats. Um, don't push, you know, push their own barrows too much. Allow people to pause and listen, you know. And we've built that up over, you know, 20 years, you know, like, you know, and I and I, and I had, I paused at that time because there was, I mean, I've only been living there three or four years and and another guy of similar age um, probably lived there a couple of years longer than me. But if he and I were, you know, you know, if, if there were more people of our age, people say, oh, that would be great. But no, I think it would be terrible because, like, we'd all be almost, like, trying to, like, outmatch each other with the number of ideas and the things that we could do. And there's really a healthy ability with, you know, pace. People are happy to take time to, you know, you know, put an idea out there, think about it, discuss it at, you know, different opportunities. We have an awful lot of opportunities to discuss things in our community that, like, if we go to the swimming hole, there's other people there and you might talk about something there, you know, and, you know, we don't, you know, we have a, you know, a green where we meet and, you know, community area where we meet and so there's there's multiple opportunities to bump into people but if you don't want to, you can also sort of stay away in your private thing. So I think the pace of, of what people want is also hard to sort of define and I think it's hard to sort of say, well, like I'm happy for these more difficult things to happen over a, a longer period of time so I don't know when you know of course you want change and you know, I want to live an alternative existence right now 
but you know it's kind of like well you can't just stop everything and 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 press the reset button no you know? i was going to add about the <clears throat> time thing that from my experience as an american um and looking at american politics that time thing the urgency can be such a such a strategic plot strategic ploy by any one political party like uh we have to do this and we're going to push senate and put all this pressure on uh congress to push through this bill where um it's completely ignoring things like ethics i mean i guess american ethics is uh, capitalist ethics, but um, not sure that capitalism has a well, yeah, ethics. Uh, yeah, the, that's that's not the real thing, but yeah, the time. Well, you know, whenever I uh, get into a discussion with people about politics, it usually, as I said before, it comes back to a discussion about ethics because you know, um, people often ask me when we get into those discussions where I sit on the political spectrum. Am I left or right, you know, Labor or Liberal, and I always tell them, well, I don't really fit anywhere in that spectrum. I mean, you know, I want to achieve, I guess, sustainable outcomes where people can, you know, be happy. I guess it's a utilitarian um, perspective. I've been reading a bit about utilitarianism over the last few years since I interviewed um, uh, Peter, what's his face, down in Melbourne? No, no, no. The the um, ethicist, the the guy who wrote the book on um, uh, not eating animals. Is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Singer, Peter Singer. I was thinking, I was thinking yeah. Seeger. I was like Pete Seeger. No, yeah, very Pete similar. Seeger, that's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seeger popped in my mind, but it was for a different reason. And uh, Peter Singer said he was a utilitarian, <laughs> and I, I, it led me to read a bit about utilitarianism. I mean, utilitarianism. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's a uh, you know a uh, philosophy that goes back a few hundred years to guys like Jeremy Bentham, but um, it, it's basically about uh, you're smoking exactly the same cigar. Why do you need to try mine? I didn't know it was the same. I it's exactly the same. We both got like 23 darker. Maduros. No, it's just I took my label off. <laughs> She's stealing my cigar. <laughs> I, I've got the same thing, but I want to try yours. Um, it, There's it, something to that. Yeah. Um, and it's about uh, utilitarianism is about whatever causes the least amount of suffering or harm. And, you know, I, I think that if, if you sat down with most Australians, and I'm sure most Americans, most, most Brits, whatever, most Canadians, Kiwis, at the end of the day, I, th- I think, and I want to ask you guys about this, I think most of us would agree on most of the ethics by which we want our society to operate. We're going to differ over things like abortion, euthanasia. There's some fairly thorny issues out there that we're going to debate about. But to the end, of, at the end of the day, do you think that we're going to agree on 85 90% of things? Like do we want people to um, be starving in our society? Do we want people to be uh, – do we want, you know, the crime to be able to happen without penalties? Do we want – Suffering. I mean, do we choose f- to have suffering in our society or do we try to reduce suffering as much as possible? What do you think? Do you think most Australians, Angus, would agree on a, uh, you know, the majority of ethical outcomes? I don't know. About four or five years ago, I 
I entered and started a discussion with my dad and still ongoing, which is about the shades of grey, you know, like, mm. and, and I, you know, like he sees things as black and white and I'm like, well, on this issue, you say that the majority of people would think this way, but that's only because of your, your, your upbringing and your life experiences that you now think that on this topic, this is, this is the line in the sand. And like, so on every particular issue, the line in the sand is different. I, I find it really, mm. and I've been trying to engage with him on, on specific things. And I was like, I mean, abortion is a really good one because you sort of say, okay, so abortion's out, right, but what about if your daughter got raped, you know? Oh, well, hang on, you know. So then, you know, there's different you know, subsets of the rule. Things are slippery. Yeah, so, I mean... I, I like the idea that maybe some things are just like on the edge, but I'm I'm just not sure when you get into the meat of the problem, whether there everything has edge cases. Sure, you know, of so course. Like I mean, I'm not sure everything has a a middle area where everything can everyone can agree because what you think is like okay is an edge case for someone else. But there there are there are questions of ethics that we already as a society do agree on that we mm. talk about. I mean in Australia we you know the majority of Australians don't believe in the death penalty. I mean we haven't had the death penalty oh, in this on, country hang on, hang on, for hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I disagree. I I do believe that if you speak to people who are the victims of crime, they think differently. Of course they do, but the victims of crime uh, when you've been the victim of a crime, you're no, never in a good position to discuss questions like that objectively. I mean, that's why Whoa. we don't let victims of crime, you know, determine the punishment of the criminal of their because they're not objective. It's right. a subjective experience. I mean, our legal system has been developed over, you know, centuries to get to a point where the victim doesn't get to do an eye for an eye because we realize that's not a it's not a, a, a functional way to create objective punishment um, you know I wouldn't have thought that we've, we've, we've evolved into a legal system that makes general society pleased with the results we give we hand over the responsibility for punishment to a selected few. Like the judges in Queensland are the ones who dictate or not how long someone is locked up for. And every now and again something comes up where, you know, uh, you know, a crime has been committed, a rape or a, you know, child molester or something. And and society is it's reported on page one and everyone you know, is up in arms because that person didn't get very much time. But yet the judge was the one who sat on that for months often. And he, he, it's, he had to sleep on that. Hmm. And he had all the evidence, yet we still don't go, okay, no, we all, we all sort of say, no, we want that guy locked up more. But we, have, we haven't had the death penalty in Australia since 1967 or 69. I, I can't remember. It was like 67 or 69, the last execution in Australia, legal execution. Um, and whilst uh, I'm sure there are individuals in certain situations who would like to argue for the death penalty... As a society, I mean, and, and, you know, I'm just pulling this out as, as something that we tend to agree on. We, we, we don't, I mean, I could go more basic. We don't, we, we agree that people shouldn't be allowed to commit murder in society, right? This is, there, there are certain ethical things that 
we tend to agree on. And yeah, there are going to be edge cases yep. even in there. I mean, if yep. if a guy is beating Chrissy to death, and I'm standing there, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill him. I'm I'm gonna defend her. And yes, I'm we gonna, have edge cases. Exactly. I will cut a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know but, I can't resist that one. But <laughs> I think the if we ignore the edge case, if we can try and stay away from the edge case because it's too easy to to do that, you know, to to talk about edge cases, but I I guess um I have problems with outsourcing my morality to people who are essentially I mean what the systems we've got now is where we ex- we have a system that is meant to, you know, create laws that embody our morality or ethics, but yet they don't tend to do that. That's because we don't have a discussion about our ethics or our moral framework. So you're basically talking about, like, the Bill of Rights, like we had discussed. In the U.S. In the U.S., we have a Bill of Rights. What's it doing, though? Is it really helping? And that's, I think that's a discussion of um, capitalism because really capitalism is our um, code. It's a code how the country operates. And so the Bill of Rights is there, but what is it actually doing? We still have um, capital punishment. We still have this and this and this and this. I mean, and I say we as I'm representing Americans, but what's it actually doing? Shit, that's what. But I mean, so you're saying a code of ethics, but mm, I'm just saying in in America, policy is still uh, ethics in policy making is. Still always an afterthought, I think, rather than a forethought. Of course, and that, this is my point, is that as a, as, a, as a society, we don't have a continual and ongoing dialogue about the ethics that we as a society uh, want to strive for. The system, it doesn't happen in the media, it doesn't happen in uh, any level of government that I'm aware I mean, it may happen from time to time between individuals, of course, but I'm, I'm saying that it, it's not systematic. It, it's not, you know, something that is discussed uh, uh, publicly and regularly uh, in society about what are the ethics that we stand for and therefore what legislation do we need to put into place to ensure certain ethical outcomes. I was going to... Um Say one uh, one um, example of this. Um, a recent example is the censorship issue in Australia. Um, if there was something like freedom of speech, I mean, obviously, do you have something like that? You don't have a constitution. We do have a constitution. We don't have a Bill of Rights. So there's an Australian constitution. Is freedom of speech no in there? So maybe the censorship <laughs> issue. I mean, at least that. I mean, I think that's a basic um, ethical uh, well, code that could be employed, and that wouldn't be an issue here then. I mean, we, we do have certain things in the Constitution that protect certain freedoms, and then we do have, you know, a, a history of legal precedents that have enshrined things like libel laws and defamation laws and 
um, you know, the, the um, protections of certain freedoms of, of speech and, and, and action. Mm. But not in terms of, they're not encoded into something like a Bill of Rights. Yeah, I just looked up Bill of Rights on Wikipedia. Australia is the only Western country with neither a constitutional nor legislative Bill of Rights, although there is an ongoing debate in many of Australia's states. Former Australian Prime Minister John Howard has argued against a Bill of Rights for Australia as transferring power for, from elected politicians to unelected judges and bureaucrats. Da 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 da. Yeah. And God forbid we give we give power to people who are unelected. Yeah, they're oh part my of God. a machine. God, what, what help us all. Then? God, my chaos. Yeah, God, they're not they're not part of us. God, they might be making you know decisions because they have some like I don't know ethical framework. <laughs> <laughs> like they're not worried about like you know who's lighting their pocket or who's voting for them. You know, it's um so so if we take the typical argument that I tend to get into with people, discussion, debate, I tend to get into with people, particularly my friends that consider themselves, you know, <coughs> capitalists and pro-capitalists and pro-business, etc. And we, we have a, a typical discussion about something like uh, welfare or taxation that, that's being used to fund public health or public education, those sorts of things. Um, you know, it uh, you know, I'll often get into a, uh, a discussion where my, my capitalist friends will say, well, I work really hard for my money and why should I – it's not right that I should have to – that money should be taken away from me and given to other people that are lazy and haven't worked for it, etc. Which, by the way, is, is the viewpoint that I had in my 20s. I mean I, I considered myself a laissez-faire capitalist in my 20s. But, uh, you know, when I take that discussion and start talking about, well – what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where, uh, let's say, so, 95% uh, of the population are starving to death and uh, become so um, <coughs> angry at the disparity between the haves and the haves-nots that they break into a revolution, like the French Revolution in the late 18th century? Is that the kind of society you want to live in? Most most of these people will say, well, no, no, I don't want to live in that society. Uh, if I ask them if there was somebody out the front of your house that if your next door neighbor, let's say, um, all of a sudden lost everything and through no fault of their own and was uh, their family was starving to death and they were starving, they, were, they had no food, would you not offer them a meal? to eat that you had paid for with your own work. And most people would say, well, yes, I would. I wouldn't let somebody right in front of me, a member of my family or a friend or a colleague, go through that kind of hardship. So we can agree that there is a certain level of care for our neighbours that we have. And then that discussion tends to move a little bit broader to, well, you know, if there is if there's somebody in the next street or the next suburb or the next city that is starving and we can take care of them, do we have... Uh, and and we you know you've got three plasma TVs and four cars and five properties and a share portfolio worth millions of dollars. I mean, at what point do you start to take care of the people around you that aren't as smart or aren't as lucky or aren't as fortunate, or you know the the very fact that we all live in a society where I don't care how smart you are and and what a brilliant entrepreneur you are, unless there were all these other people performing the basic functions that society requires, cleaning streets, 
teaching in schools, working in hospitals, you wouldn't be able to do what you've done without a, a support framework that society provides you with. Even Bill Gates couldn't have built Microsoft for all of his brilliance unless he lived in a society that created all of the support infrastructure so he didn't have to grow his own food, pave his own roads, uh, generate his own electricity. He wouldn't have been able to do what he did. But anyway, when that when the, when the conversation moves to something about to, to more one of ethics and how we live together, I find typically that we tend to agree on more things than we do if we just stick to a capitalism versus communism ideological debate. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I come from a... I guess I, I'm living at the moment where there's a real debate in our community about our cooperative assets, which is amongst our 640 acres, there's a large amount of that that's owned by a cooperative that essentially is not being fully utilised. And the system that's been in place hasn't really worked because, the, you know, as soon as you start defining you should, you know, you need to work a certain number of hours, you know, for example, like if you're a member of this cooperative and you want to have a shared, you know, ownership of this asset, then you must contribute a certain amount of time because time is the only, you know, constant thing. Now, the fact that it takes you two hours to do something that takes me four hours, is that is that okay? You know, is that something that we're... And, and I, I guess I'm currently talking and experimenting with, well, you know, real hard aspects where we used to have a 10-hour compulsory a year. You know, people used to have to do 10 hours and before that, you know, it was whittled, whittled down from 50 hours to 10 hours and now we've actually got rid of the whole thing because no one was really doing... People were doing well and above their 10 hours and some people were doing none and no one wanted to be the auditor. You know, someone's got to audit the fact, hey, Jimmy, you haven't done your 10 hours, you know, like when are you going to come down and, you know, you know, pave the, you know, the, you know, the new path or, you know, so... I think the it's I guess I, I'm finding it you know exp, you know I'm enjoying at the moment the 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 hard coalface of it is in terms of well how do you design something that people actually believe in and do and the problem that I you know I'm sort of talking about at the moment is there's there's no there's there's no problem everyone's got enough money everyone's kind of got their assets and our cooperative is an experiment on the side. If it works, it's kind of fun. That's kind of cool. I can show that off to my friends as a trophy thing. You know, it's like it's almost like a uh, I'm a trophy hippie. You know, here's my here's my trophy co-op and oh. and <laughs> these are the cooperative things that we do. A trophy hippie. It's yeah. <laughs> but but that's that's not to you know like I I knowing the people who have put. And an immense amount of their time and life and countless amount of man months and in some case years into our cooperative. I find it, you know, like I, I'm overwhelmed with the burden of 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 that, you know, because I feel that they're not being um, justly rewarded because um, there's other members of our communities who 
will, you know, cite, you know, economic policy where or economic, you know, realisms where people will not contribute if they don't have to. Okay, so we've got a cooperative in our community and you can choose to be a member or not. Um, and if you don't and you can put up with all the guilt that other people give you, then you still get to reap the benefits. You know, there's no, you know, um, and this is the, I mean, this is to, to extract it to a wider, you know, Australian context, anyone can stop work. Well, it used to be easier, but um, you basically have to be dead now to not work in this country. But anyone can stop work and um, be supportive for some period of time, you know. And I think that's great. I have no problem with that. I hope someone supports me when I can't work. It doesn't mean I live in a lap of luxury, but I still will be able to find some form of shelter and food. Well, and I think that um, the overall deal sealer for me in this conversation is the idea of an overall healthy society. And, I mean, what, what does it take to have a healthy society? A healthy society takes care of those in need. Um, I think in a healthy society, people are less likely to take advantage of systems. They're given more opportunities for education. Their um, health needs are taken care of. Um, I, I don't. I, I mean, I think we can pick apart any one scenario and any one example of this or this or that. But I think in a healthy society, you can pick some governing ethics. And in our society, you can have ethics as a either a forethought or an afterthought in decision-making. And if it's an afterthought, I don't think that that necessarily is constructing a healthy society or constructive of a healthy healthy society. Which is essentially what socialism is all about, right? Socialism is all about how do we create a healthy and functioning society mm -hmm. where everybody in that society has, uh, you know, shelter, has, you know, Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs, right? Has shelter, has clothing, has food, has warmth, is protected from, you know, uh, violence. Um, and once you've taken care of those basic Maslowian needs, then you start looking at education, at healthcare, um, for everybody with a basic understanding that, as you said, if you have a healthy society, everyone benefits mm -hmm. from that. You know, you know I, I try to explain quite often to my um, hardcore capitalist friends that actually there's nothing altruistic about wanting everyone to be healthy in society. It's actually very selfish because I know that, you know, I know from reading history, take the French Revolution as a great example, that when there is this huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots, that the haves tend to get guillotined uh, and run through with a pitchfork. So, you know, it it it, it benefits us all from a you know a very um, obtuse example like that to more practical examples that if um, you know the the kids going to the same school that my kids go to if 
they are uh, uh, healthy and well adapted and well functioning. They they aim just you know it's going to be a better place for my kids to mm-hmm. go to school. B some of those kids might go on because they've got public education. They might go on to invent the next great thing that changes society and makes it better for all of us. I mean we don't know you know, who the latent um, inventors and innovators are in our society. And if those kids miss out on an education, maybe the kid that was going to invent the cure for cancer happened to live in a family where his parents were poor. And if we don't give that kid education he and make sure that he survives through to adulthood, he doesn't or she doesn't go on to invent the cure for cancer or whatever it is. We, we want, for a whole bunch of reasons, we want as many people as possible in our society to be healthy, happy, uh, you know, uh, well-functioning individuals, contributing individuals to our society. Mm. I also, I also am just thinking about the United States and um, <clears throat> how rotten at the core it is <laughs> and how rotten society is at the core. People aren't getting health care. People aren't getting good education and I mean look at the state of things yeah but I mean it comes down to self-responsibility a bit I mean like um, I don't like to to give a recent example here I don't think the people who constructed a a way for Australia to you know give essentially free insulation to Australian homes thought in their wildest dreams that people would take advantage of the situation and, you know, put in systems that would electrocute families and burn down houses. Like, they honestly thought that people would think with their own mind and and intellect that that was a bad thing. But yet, Australians constantly prove at every turn point, it's about me, I'm going to protect myself, I'm going to take what I can because they keep on taking away from me. Like the system we've constructed now is it's me versus the system. Well, that's 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 the that's the uh, outcome you expect from a capitalist um, society, right? I mean, a capitalist society basically engenders an environment where everyone. I mean, people know that uh, those that have the money have the power in a capitalist society. That's essentially what capitalism is about. If you have the capital. You control the means of production, so you have more power in terms of, you know, how you live, whether you're a, a have or a have not. And you know, one of the things that we should have learned, particularly in the last uh, couple of years, uh, if not previously, is that one of the outputs of capitalism is that the people that have the money are able to control the political process in a number of ways. I mean. Yeah. As obvious a way as they they you know they um, corrupt the politicians by by you know buying their vote on certain legislative uh, issues. Angus is walking away to go to the bathroom. I suspect. Yes. All right. Um, I'll just keep talking. Um, I'm here. I thought so. Hello. <laughs> I thought so. Through to you know less obvious mechanisms. I mean, in a capitalist society, the people with the money control the media. Mm. And the media then controls the way that most people think because the media in a Western country, in a capitalist society, is basically a it's a programming mechanism. It's a propaganda mechanism, whether it's intended to be or not. It's how that's sure. what it ends up doing. And, of course, if you're a wealthy individual and you own a media company, 
you're going to try and make sure that the content that runs on that media platform is content that continues the status quo because mm-hmm. you obviously like the status quo. It's Because you have the power. Yeah, and, and you know it's treating you well or you've done well by the system, so you don't want the system to change. Sure. So you're going to, you know, can, you're going to only support programming that is going to engender the sort of society that you want to see. And I think it's all about empowerment too. I mean, capitalist, capitalism um, is all about empowering the already well-to-do, the already wealthy. And the system that we're talking about, socialism, whatever, um, I guess we're comparing capitalism and socialism right now in a way. Um, but the other system is empowering um, every person to the rights, um, to, to have the rights of education, healthcare, da-da-da-da-da. Yes. I mean, so it's really one for all and all for one, in a way. Well, you know, I mean, that's certainly uh, one of the in, in, intentions, I guess, in socialism. Um and obviously, greed is inherent in in humans, in in some humans. Um, there are always going to be people in any society that try and exploit whichever uh, socioeconomic system you live under, whether it's capitalism or socialism or communism or um, uh, a theocracy, mm. for their own benefit. <clears throat> the objective should be to, you know, create a society where that group of greedy, selfish, um, aggressive individuals unable to exploit the system to the detriment of other members of society. I keep thinking about um, Michael Moore's Sicko. Um, For those of you who have seen this, you might remember, he's interviewing uh, doctors in France, and um, they have a beautiful, cushy life, um, not near as extravagant as the doctors that you might encounter in the U.S. with, you know, several cars and huge houses and all this stuff that they don't really need. And that's basically what the doctors say. It's like, well, okay, you and your wife have a car and you have, you know, a house, beautiful furnishings, da-da-da-da-da, but it's not this huge estate. They just say, "Why would I need any more?" They're making a hundred grand a year. I mean, they're not, you know, doing it tough. Yeah. Living, yeah, but I mean, that's yeah, but the, how much is enough? Like, you know, like yeah, there is, there, there well, is no. There, I mean, and of course, yeah. they they live. Um, they're they're better off than the average person, and they live more extravagantly and comfortably than the average person. But they're not living with all this stuff that they don't need and then want more and are going to just try to exploit everybody else to get all that other stuff that they really don't need in the first place. And so they're in a system where they're saying, well, hey, I live a great life. Like, yeah. Why do I need 10 Porsches and, you know. And if you're, if you're a healthy, I mean, uh, I, I think if you're a emotionally healthy, well-balanced human being, you tend and and you know you're not um, on the starving line. I mean, if if I, I've been periods in my life, including in the last couple of years, where I wasn't able to buy food, I wasn't able to pay the rent, I wasn't able to pay my bills. When you're in that mode of existence, money is 
quite often your your first mode of thought. It's yeah, how do how I how do I get some? Yeah, exactly. And you know, from the majority of humans that have ever lived, and and for the majority of the humans that live on the planet today, they're still in that mode of existence. How do I put food on the table to feed my family? And that's all you think about, whether it's you know by through you know generating income or whatever other mechanism. And at this juncture. We uh, ran out of recording room on the uh, Zoom H2 that I was using, uh, the little HD card filled up. So uh, that's where we're going to leave it. There was a lot of you know, great discussion that followed, but uh, we'll have to try it again next time. I'd like to thank Angus and Chrissy for uh, chatting with me. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. Uh, tune in next time. Cheers. Cheers.